Sometimes the Bible inspires us. Sometimes it confuses us. But sometimes the Bible just upsets us. Today on Torah for Christians, we are going to examine some of the most disturbing laws of the Torah, the laws of slavery. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Whenever we Americans hear the word slavery, it sparks instant revulsion. We immediately associate this word with antebellum plantations, slave markets, Dred Scott, John Brown, and the Civil War. It's America's original sin, one for which we have not yet fully repented. In the Bible, though, slavery means more than capturing other human beings and forcing them to work for you without compensation or the ability to leave. When we talk about an Evid, a male Hebrew slave, slavery means one thing. And when we talk about a person captured in war and condemned to become a slave to an Israelite, it means something else entirely. Let's start with the male Hebrew slave, beginning with Exodus chapter 21. When an Israelite acquires a Hebrew slave, that slave serves only six years. After six years, he is set free, unless he requests to be a permanent slave. In that case, his master pierces his ear with an awl, signifying permanence. He might request to stay if, say, his master gave him a wife and they bore children. If he leaves, his family stays with the owner. So it would not be surprising if he wanted to stay. Unlike the American slave system, the owner is not allowed to break up families, except at the time of manumission. In the case of a man who sells his daughter as a slave, the girl goes free when she shows the signs of puberty. The Torah protects women and girls from an unwanted marriage, or in the worst case, rape by doing so. If she can become pregnant, she is released to her father. Adult women, who are assumed to be married, are not mentioned. Such omission means that Israelite women most likely cannot be slaves. When we realize that slavery is a temporary condition for Hebrews, the definition changes. Instead of thinking about biblical slavery in the same way that we think of African slaves in the United States, we should think more Dickensian, namely that Hebrew slavery is a form of indentured servitude. A man loans himself to another, often a creditor, for no more than six years, and then he goes free. And if he sells his minor daughter, she goes free at the onset of puberty. These are protections that the Torah gives to Israelites. Slavery is not a permanent condition. Even the slave who chooses to remain with his master must be released during the Jubilee year, which occurred every 50 years. We might not like the situation at all, but realize that it is different. It is an economic bargain, not a physical encapturement. In, in the Torah provides another protection for slaves that is quite different from the American slave experience. When a man blinds his male or female slave, that slave goes free immediately. And it's not just the eye. Any action that causes a disability leads to a release. In other words, Jewish masters are not allowed to physically beat their slaves, lest they be set free, 
even if that slave only loses a tooth. The Torah demands that Israelite masters treat their Hebrew slaves humanely. The Torah guarantees a release day after six years, an option for lifelong servitude in order to remain with his wife and family, a mandatory release at the Jubilee every 50 years, an automatic release for girls when they reach puberty, and automatic release if the slave is injured. The slave can also return to his property after his indenture. Plus, the owner cannot sell a female slave to another person. That is a lot of protection for one who becomes a slave, who is doing so often to pay off a debt. And in the Talmud, by the way, the protections go even further. The slave must eat the same food that the master eats and sleep in the same type of bed and have the same kind of accommodations. Slave quarters, then, should be equal to the master's home. Do we know, though, how often a man sold himself or his daughter into slavery? We really don't, but it seems to have been a rare occurrence, fortunately. But what about the non-Israelite slave, the one captured in war? The protections offered a Hebrew slave do not carry over to the foreign slave. Leviticus 25 verses 44 through 46 offers the following. Such male and female slaves as you may have, it is from the nations around you that you may acquire male and female slaves. You may also buy them from among the children of resident aliens among you, or from their families that are among you, whom they begot in your land. These shall become your property. You may keep them as a possession for your children after you, for them to inherit as property for all time. Such you may treat as slaves. But as for your Israelite kinsmen, no one shall rule ruthlessly over the other. Non-Israelite slaves, referred to as Canaanite slaves in rabbinic literature, are subject to different rules. Their slavery is permanent. Unlike Israelite slaves, an owner can buy and sell Canaanite slaves. They are property, just as blacks were considered property prior to the Civil War. Owners can also pass these slaves to their children as an inheritance which certainly implies that this type of slavery was a permanent condition. But there is one caveat. If a Canaanite slave is injured, he or she is free. Masters are not to mistreat their slaves, Israelite or not. But there is one more important situation that we must examine, the female taken captive in war. When a soldier captures a woman in warfare, he is not allowed to harm her. If he desires her, he must bring her home and allow her 30 days to mourn her loss, to cry over her family and her home. He cannot go to her, nor can he have sexual relations with her. It is only after those 30 days, when emotions might have cooled a bit, that he can decide to marry her. If he does, she is his wife. It is a permanent condition, no chance for divorce. If he decides not to marry her, he must release her to her father. Her emotional state at the end of the 30 days plays a huge part in his decision. Marauding armies often raped women and pillaged villages. Sexual assault was common, but one of the defining principles of the Torah is a respect for the basic rights of women, Israelite or not. Jewish soldiers were not allowed to rape the woman from whose cities they conquer. While it might seem wrong that he can marry a female captive without her consent, 
the 30-day waiting period offered her some protection. Maybe he would change his mind before she was violated. As I mentioned at the start, this talk of slavery makes us very uncomfortable today. After the break, we will examine the question, would there be any way to bring the institution of slavery back to life? I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome back to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. If you are enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to go to our website, www.torahforchristians.net, where you can find previous episodes, which cover a variety of topics. You can also access them on various podcast websites, such as iTunes, Spotify, and Google. Also, please subscribe to my Substack column, Bible Stories They Never Taught You in Religious School a commentary on the weekly Torah portion that I publish every Friday morning. You can subscribe to this column either on Substack or on our website. How do Jews feel about reviving slavery today? Even in the ultra-Orthodox world, there is no thought that slavery will ever experience a revival, even if the temple is restored. In the book Crisis in Faith, written after the Holocaust, Rabbi Eliezer Berkowitz offers an important brief. Let us take the case of the Jewish slave. That a Jew should buy another Jew as a slave is an intolerable thought, which is rejected by everything that the teaching of the Torah and its religious and ethical significance stands for. Yet it was a fact accepted and incorporated in the law. Obviously, slavery was an institution that in biblical times, given human nature, social and economic conditions could not have been abolished by any law. So the law limited the duration of the slavery. The slave had to be set free after six years of service. The Bible insists on calling the slave thy brother and prescribes how he is to be treated. Thou shalt not rule over him with rigor, but shalt fear thy God. The rabbis in the Talmud then went on to explain that the slave's standard of living had to be equal to that of the master. Do not yourself eat fine bread and give him the coarse one. Do not drink old wine and let him have only new wine. Sleep not on a soft bed while he has to sleep on straw. So much so that people would say, he who buys himself a Jewish slave buys a master for himself. The biblical law regarding a father selling his minor daughter, less than 12 years and a day old, to be a maidservant is similar in essence. It is inconceivable that today the most orthodox of orthodox Jews would allow such a practice. Even if the state of Israel were established in full conformity with Torah and Jewish law, it is inconceivable that both these laws should not be completely abolished and with the full approval of the orthodox rabbinate. Both cases are examples of time-conditioned practices which could not be abolished by the law abruptly, but which were, however, legally limited modified, humanized. They were absorbed by a net of laws and regulations that incorporated the thrust of the transcending ethos of the Torah, thus educating the people and guiding their moral development along lines which would lead to the complete abolition of the objectionable practice. To put Berkowitz's important statement into context, there are laws in the Torah that we cannot observe today 
for moral and ethical reasons. We cannot directly abrogate them, but we can put up enough barriers so that they cannot be practiced. The laws of slavery are but one example, albeit an important one. Certainly it is possible to work for somebody, but we cannot indenture ourselves. And if anything, the rules of warfare make it a war crime today for a soldier to rape or kidnap a conquered civilian, female or male. Let's apply this thinking to the American slave experience. We would consider that kidnapping, enslavement, rape, and subjugation of African slaves to be one of the most heinous of sins. And for the small number of Jews active in the slave trade, those who operated slave markets in Charleston, for example, or who might have even owned a slave or two, I have no issue in calling them sinners. I certainly hope that we Americans come to confront the legacy of slavery. We Jews will look at our specific role in this horrible enterprise. We did not play a major role in the slave trade, but many of us were silent in our condemnations. And yes, there were some who were abolitionists, but there were just not enough Jews in America at the time to really make a difference. I want to thank you for listening to Torah for Christians. Please like and review this and all my podcasts on our website, www.torforchristians.net or on iTunes. You can also subscribe to my Substack column, Bible Stories That Never Taught You in Religious School, on the website or directly on Substack. Next week, we will discuss marriage and divorce in the Bible. We'll be surprised by what we learn. Again, thank you for listening to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and I wish you a wonderful week. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for us to live together as one. Till we meet again, I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this has been Torah for Christians.